All right, joining us now in the program, as you mentioned at the top of the program, is going to be someone who knows a great deal about the Secret Service. In fact, he's written a new book titled Who's Who in the Secret Service, subtitled History's Most Renowned Agents, and there's a hundred different individuals that are talked about in this book, and we need to talk to the author about them. So we're pleased to be able to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Vince Palomera. Oh, thanks a lot, Doug, and thank you to all your listeners. Appreciate it. Well, Vince, you've been studying the Secret Service. I'm, I'm guessing. Well, actually, when did you start? I mean, I know that this is there's a there's a JFK connection to this, but when did it all begin for you? I'm 52 now. At the age of 12, I got very much into both JFK's life and death at the same time, and I became fascinated with the Secret Service, and so the two kind of melded together. And now, fast forward to like 1990, 91, <clears throat> I made it a quest to try to find every former agent that protected President Kennedy I could. And this was quite a challenge before the Internet. Yeah. So a lot of it was, you know, dredging old newspaper archives and whatnot. So I ended up just through the years interviewing and or corresponding with dozens of them. Yeah. So that's right. And other agents from other, you know, administrations down to FDR and all the way up to George W. Bush. Well, listeners to this radio show know that we're quite interested in what happened to our 35th president and some of the mysteries which remain, and I'm keen to talk to you about that. But you went way back to the beginning here in some cases of the, of the Secret Service. Now, I'd like to go back in time and then, and then come forward from there. My understanding from your book is that Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, actually, unfortunately, on the eve of his, of his assassination, signed an order that would bring uh, what's today's Secret Service into being. Correct, yeah. It's an irony of history, fate, that, uh, yeah, on the night that he was heading to Ford's Theater, before he left for the theater, he signed a bill. It was for um, Treasury Secretary Hugh McCullough on the night of April 14, 1865, uh, that uh, initiated the organization called the Secret Service. Then, obviously, you know, unfortunately, President Lincoln went to Ford's Theater, was shot by John Wilkes Booth, and so that's an irony. It took an assassination that actually... You know, it started the Secret Service. Now, at that time, you know, we're talking basically the late 19th century, the Secret Service was more um, interested in counterfeiting. And it's the tail end of the Civil War, so we're also talking, you know, uh, investigating, uh, you know, traitors and the Confederacy, and even the war was technically over at one point. It was still people that were, like, loyal to the Confederacy and maybe wished terrorism on the North and so forth. And that's the way it went from there. And then, you know, going into the very late 19th century, there was plots against President Grover Cleveland. And it was actually a plot specifically to kidnap his daughter, Ruth. Oh, wow. I, I was surprised just to say uh, a gal that I went to college with went out and joined the Secret Service. And I remember talking to her many years later. And I was sort of surprised at her, her career choice. And her comment to me was, yeah, well, most of what we're doing has to do with, with counterfeiting, which I thought was a surprising thing for her to say. Right. Well, yeah, see, that's one thing. Most people, when they first think of the Secret Service, they think of the gallant men and women in their, you know, sunglasses and their earpiece and so forth around the president and dignitaries. And that's definitely a vital, very vital job, a part of what they do. But most agents start out in field offices and even in their training, and what they do is they investigate counterfeiting, uh, credit card fraud, ATM uh, fraud, and so on and so forth, any kind of like financial crimes. <clears throat> so they get, you know training on that, and then at the same time, they also are trained on protection, you know, specifically the president and all you know, protection in general. 
So often what happens is after they graduate from the academy and they go into a field office, they um, pair up with a more senior agent. They go out there literally on counterfeit cases. Now, you know, in the advent of the 21st century and the way things are with computers and so forth, the digital crimes, it's, it's less about paper money, although it's still important, it's more about all the, lack of a better way to put it, worldwide web financial crimes. And so they investigate that. And then how they get their feet wet with protection is whenever a president or a high dignitary, like the vice president and so on, visits the town. Let's say for some, you know, woman agent is um, stationed in Atlanta. And, oh, um, Vice President Pence is coming to Atlanta next week. So what they'll do is they'll get their feet wet by being post-standers. And they might not be super close to the vice president in this case, this is an example, but they'll still be posted on the perimeter because the Secret Service always works in concentric circles. Now, it's classified how many circles of protection there are. There's the White House detail, also there's the presidential protective detail that are very close to the president or high dignitary. Well, then you have the other rim or rims, and that's where somebody like an agent from the Atlanta field office would get their feet wet. And then if supervisory agents think, boy, you know what, you would be better served in the protection, you seem like you have more of a forte for that, then maybe they'll get lucky, and after a 30-day temporary assignment, they'll end up being a full-time protective detail agent, or some people are just better suited for counterfeiting investigative crimes. Well, unfortunately for American history, uh, Abraham Lincoln was not the last American president assassinated. Uh, I'm sure there were presidential details, uh, has something to do with what happened to J uh, James Garfield and William McKinley. But you note in the book, we, we, there's little known about, about the circumstances, um, of at least the protection around those, those uh, presidents. But we pick up the trail again, I think, Teddy Roosevelt. Right, yeah, just briefly, yeah, the, the Secret Service at the time McKinley was killed, uh, was assassinated, um, still was not charged with protecting the president. It was still all counterfeiting and, um, oh. you know, espionage. Yeah, and then in 1901, this is the irony of ironies, in uh, September 6, 1901, when McKinley was assassinated, there were a few Secret Service operatives, they called them. They weren't known as agents, then operatives. They were close by, but they were there more for crowd control. So when President McKinley was assassinated that day in the Buffalo Exposition, people can't really look at it as a Secret Service failure. It was more um, the guards around, uh, actual soldiers. That was their failure. Not that, but they were just there for crowd control. It wasn't until after McKinley was assassinated and Teddy Roosevelt became president that they became formally charged with protecting the president. There was a formal White House detail. Uh -huh. When Kennedy was killed in 1963, that was the first president officially killed under their watch. Well, at 1901, uh, McKinley shot a year later. We, we find in the history here, as you, as you delineate it, the first Secret Service agent killed in the line of duty. This was a Mr. William Craig, and it's a very strange circumstance you describe. Uh, a, an electric trolley was bearing down upon the carriage containing Teddy Roosevelt, and Craig stood up, tried to wave the trolley off, put his body between that and Roosevelt, and was killed. Yes, and then Teddy Roosevelt uh, credited him and so the surviving witnesses and whatnot <clears throat> for saving President Roosevelt's life because um, this amazing thing, that was really just incredible uh, heroism, knowing that he was probably going to be killed. He stood his way, and... Um, other than a few bruised ribs and whatnot, Teddy Roosevelt was fine, and uh, you know a couple other people were injured. Uh, presidential assistant George Cornelieu and Winthrop uh, McCain with Massachusetts governor. They only received superficial cuts and bruises and whatnot. But uh, the irony thing about William Craig, um, he was a, again the first agent killed in line of duty. It was almost a year to the day after the McKinley assassination. He bears a remarkable resemblance to future 
director of the Secret Service, uh, Joe Clancy. Huh. You ever see the two together? They, they look incredibly alike. But um, back to Teddy Roosevelt, him and uh, yeah, his family were very hurt, despondent by William Craig's death because he called William Craig my shadow. And uh, he was fiercely loyal with this very much um, a friend of the Roosevelt's and, you know, all his aides and whatnot. So he really made an indelible impression in those a short amount of time in the Secret Service. Well, I'm surprised to read in, in your book, Vince, about another, in this case, attempted murder of, of a Roosevelt. This took place, uh, I guess, when FDR went to uh, Tehran to have a meeting with, uh, Chir with Churchill and Stalin. And your book notes that the Germans tried to infiltrate 38 assassins. They, I guess they, they para-dropped para them in to try and get Roosevelt and Secret Service agent Mike Riley and others uh, were, tried, were, were there to stop that. Yeah, and that was not Roosevelt's first... Uh... Russia's death in February uh, 15, 1933, when it was President-elect Roosevelt uh, down in Miami, um, of basically a lone nut, for lack of a better way to put it, stood on a chair and attempted to shoot him, but uh, he lost his balance, and some spectators also dosed and pulled his gun, and he tried to uh, move his arm or whatnot, and Mayor Cermak of Chicago was killed, and uh, Secret Service agent Robert Clark was slightly wounded. Basically, a creaky chair and a couple spectators saved you know, history, what would history be if President-elect Roosevelt would have been killed? Yeah. How that would have changed the course of history, where, you know, the advent of the, uh, the Great Depression and the onset of World War II and all the presidents that came after. It's just amazing the domino effect of, you know, God forbid, the Secret Service weren't able to do their job there. And obviously the Secret Service always did their job, too. I mean, they were definitely there to, to cover and evacuate the president who was standing, uh, or sitting, I should say, in an open car at the time. Yeah. So, yeah, Roosevelt toothbrush said the one you just mentioned there about the German paratroopers and whatnot. Yeah, Mike Ride did an amazing decoy job. Fooled the Germans and thinking that Roosevelt was in that uh, part of the motorcade, but he was already safely away. They ended up capture, capturing them all, too. And, and your book mentions, and this is probably the most um, dramatic story, which I'll wager uh, our listeners do not know anything about, four different agents you talk about involved in an attempt on Roosevelt's successor, Harry Truman. I guess Truman was in the Blair House as they were renovating the, the White House. And a couple of Puerto Rican nationalists uh, with pistols attempted to assault the uh, Blair House and shoot Truman. And boy, uh, the agents sprung into action. And tell us a little bit about that story. Sure. And uh, just like the Lincoln assassination was a conspiracy, even though it was only one shooter, there was multiple people that were hung and whatnot. Well, there was two shooters that attempted to kill Truman, so that obviously was a conspiracy there. Just an interesting, uh, you know, food for thought item. But, yeah, it was that day. Uh, these two gentlemen, uh, Oscar Colazzo and uh, Rosalio Torsolo, were Puerto Rican nationalists, and they were angry at President Truman for a stance on uh, Puerto Rico. So what they decided to do, because the White House was being renovated, they knew that President Truman was staying over at the nearby Blair House, and it appeared to be a much easier target because, unlike the White House, you know, you could basically just open, go right up to the wrought iron fence, and there's a little pathway, and there you go. Well, with broad daylight, with people just walking all over the place, you know, walking the streets, whatnot, Pennsylvania, but they, here comes these two gentlemen from both sides of the fence, and they started opening fire. And on the White House police, um, one gentleman, Leslie Kofelt, was killed. So another agent was killed in the line of duty. Well, Vince, i got, I got to stop you right there. I mean, people are not really aware of the fact that in a gun battle, one of the Secret Service agents was killed in the line of duty. He shot, I guess, uh, Tarolo in the head, killed him, but he took three bullets himself and died on the scene. 
Yes, they said it was basically witness that it was a dying move. He raised his arm and shot and shot him right through the ear and killed him instantly. And he dropped and he died. And uh, you know, President Truman wept over his uh, death too. And uh, yeah, but anyway, back to the gunfire. Yeah, he had uh, Agent Floyd Boring who shot Oscar Clazo and wounded him. Years later, Oscar Clazo, after spending years in prison, there was uh, he was granted clemency by President Carter as a move to basically uh, extend goodwill towards Puerto Rico and whatnot, and, uh, and Austin Plaza supposedly changed his ways in prison, but that's another story. But yeah, if it wasn't for the concentric circles of the Secret Service that day, we would have lost another president. The Secret Service did a terrific job. Not only did you have the agents, uh, Vince Barras and Floyd Boring and the uniform division of the Secret Service, Leslie Kofeld and a few other agents doing the job, but Stu Stout, a uh, decorated World War II veteran, he stayed inside the Blair House and amidst the uh, anger of the housekeeper saying, what are you doing? Your mates are out there. Get out there and fire and do something. He refused to move. It turned out later on he was a hero because Secret Service not all supposed to do that. They're all supposed to run towards the sound. Someone's supposed to stand their ground and maintain that concentric circle of protection because, God forbid, you know, the assassin or assassins gets past the first ring. Well, there's no one there to protect Truman. So he was standing there. I was quite shocked, Vince, yeah. to read that he was basically goes to the top of the stairs, grabs a Thompson submachine gun, uh, holds mm-hmm. down the fort, and orders Truman to get under the bed. Yes, yes. So Stu Stout was a real hero, and you know history has all these ironies. Stu Stout and Floyd Boring ended up being connected with it. They were both on the uh, connected with the Texas trip of uh, President Kennedy. Stu Stout was actually there, and Floyd Boring was planning on the Texas trip. Secret Service point so interesting, all the historical parallels there. But, uh, yeah, many people are unaware of those earlier pre-1963 attempts, you know, successful or otherwise. So it's pretty interesting how the Secret Service has, uh, you know, done their job more than once in the past. Well, uh, unfortunately, the attacks on the presidents did not stop. <clears throat> Gerald Ford, within the same month, back in 1975, I think a lot of us recall so well, had two attempts on him, and Ronald Reagan was actually hit by uh, an assassin's bullet, uh, you know, barely a few months into his presidency. Can you talk a little bit about um, those three remarkable events? Yes, September 5th, 1975, uh, Sacramento, California, uh, Gerald Ford was walking along and uh, greeting well-wishers, and all of a sudden, uh, Lynette's Squeaky Fromm, who was famous for being one of Charles Manson's followers, was in a bright red dress, and she came forward and lunged forward with a pistol. And it's a combination of the pistol misfiring and Larry Boondorf, a Secret Service agent, heroic, uh, he's unbelievable what he did. He reached forward instantaneously, grabbed the pistol before she could squeeze it. So this day, people don't know if it was a misfire or he squeezed her hand before she could uh, get the safety off in, in, in you know, the Ron Dean chamber and whatnot. But anyway, the Secret Service was there to cover and evacuate Gerald Ford literally by foot. He wasn't in a car. He was walking a rope line. And Larry Boomdorf and some of the other fellow agents of the presidential protection duty were there to, uh, you know, send Squeaky Frog off. And uh, she spent years in prison. And, and the, the uh, connection to the Manson thing was really amazing. Well, then... So the first woman that was ever an assassin, attempted assassin of president, was then <laughs> September 22nd of the very same month in 1975, Gerald Ford's in San Francisco this time, same state, California. He's leaving the Sir Francis Drake Hotel, and he's waving to people about to step into the presidential limousine when Sarah Jane Moore, another woman 
you know, assassin or potential assassin steps forward and she fires a pistol at him, misses him by six inches. And this time it was a uh, former Marine, uh, Larry Simple, who uh, grabbed her arm and then the other shot just went into the air and whatnot. Then the Secret Service came forward and, you know, jumped her and then the other agents uh, threw Gerald uh, Ford into the back of the car. One of them was Ron Pontius, who was on the Texas trip of President Kennedy, ironically. And they got Gerald uh, Ford away. So when Gerald Ford made the Air Force One, Betty Ford asked, so oh, how they treat you in San Francisco? She had no idea what was going on. And it, everyone was like, wow, there's two attempts by women. It was this bizarre freak uh, you know, history. And they don't know if Sarah Jane Moore was inspired by speaking for him. It didn't seem like she really had a personal grind against President Ford. It was more the office. It was more like an anarchistic protest. It was anything against him, per se. You know, I do want to interject this point that, uh, you know, talking about California women doing this, I've dated quite a few of them over the years, and to date, not one of them has taken a shot at me. I just wanted to get that out there. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and then, and then, uh, jumping up to uh, March 30th, 1981, and ironically, you could make an argument just about every president is in safe one respect or another. Um, Samuel Bick, um, back in 1973, wanted to uh, try to hijack an Air Force to uh, crash into the White House and kill President Nixon. So uh, even though there was officially an attempt on Nixon, there you go. So people would say, oh, there's nothing against Carter. What turns out that John Hinckley, who was uh, the uh, you know, assassin, he attempted to assassinate President uh, Reagan, March 30, 1981, well, he earlier scoped out President Carter in late 1980, but he was thwarted by the protection. He didn't get a clear shot, and he never like got his pistol out of his jacket. That was that. Well, then jump up to March 30th, 1981, as they're leaving uh, the Washington Hill. Now they call it the Hinkley Hill now, <laughs> infamous for what happened. And, uh, yeah, Ronald Reagan was only the presidency about 60 days. He left a union meeting, you know, labor leaders and whatnot, and he's leaving. And it was a classic for us. To this day, uh, Secret Service training, they show the Bruder film of the Kennedy assassination of what not to do. <laughs> then they show the video of the Reagan attempt of what to do. These guys are amazing. Jerry Parr, who I spoke to, the head of the White House detail, and the other agents, um, Tim McCarthy, who took the bullet, and Larry, uh, Ray Shattuck, and some of the other agents, they covered and evacuated perfectly. The, the door was open, the limousine, as anticipation of Reagan. When John Hickley stepped forward to take his shots, he fired like six shots in two seconds. Unbelievable. Well, they were able to throw Reagan in the back seat, and, John, and uh, Tim McCarthy took the bullet. Well, then... Um, Make long story short, what happened was on the way back to the White House, President Reagan was dabbing his mouth with a handkerchief and said, You know what? I think you uh, hurt my ribs or something. I'm bleeding a little bit. And then um, Jerry Parks took a look at it. That was bright red and frothy blood. He said, You know what? We're going to George Washington Hospital. And thank God he made that decision, Jerry Park did, because while the agents did a wonderful job at the time of the assassination attempt, President Reagan would have died if he would have made back to the White House. It turned out he was shot. Yeah. A bullet ricocheted off the uh, limousine's bulletproof uh, door, and it flattened, and it went sideways into the side of his chest and missed his heart by like an inch. And it was a devastator bullet, which are, you know, the kind that explode. Well, not only did it not explode, thank God, but it was flattened. Somehow, some way, he really, he, Reagan was Irish. He had some sort of Irish luck in a good constitution at his age, at the time being, you know, old man. And they were able to get the bullet out, and he was able to live. But he was a lot closer to death than people thought. He went into shock. He was white as a sheet. 
Uh, his respiration was shaky, so that everybody thought, oh, he wasn't hit. Turned out they found, oh, my God, he was hit. And it wasn't until years later that a um, wonderful book by Del Wilbur came out, um, Rawhide Down. It's called Rawhide. It was Reagan's Secret Service code name. Right. It turned out how close he came, Reagan came, to death. Yeah, I think I think medically it either either tore it got right up to his pericardium and might have ripped through it, which is just you know the, the sack right around the heart. So it was a close one. Yes. You know, I just want to take a minute. We're talking medical stuff. I did just want to back up because it's, it's such a remarkable story regarding presidents being shot. Is that uh, Charles Guiteau, when he shot James Garfield back in 1881, he was a crazy guy. He was thought he should get some patronage job. He didn't get it, so he shoots Garfield. And if you study the case medically, which, which I have done, I'm, I concur with Gateau's, um defense that he offered up at trial was that I shot Garfield, but his doctors killed him. Yes. <laughs> there's not, not much doubt about it. There's not much doubt about it because what they had unsterilized hands, and they were just digging around in there. Huh? That's what would kill them. Huh? Uh, yes, <laughs> they had a few other errors they made along the way, which we don't have time to go into. But uh, Modern medicine, they would have lived, yeah. Yes. We have, we have pretty much run up through 25 minutes. I think it would be much wiser for us to basically pause at this point because we're out of time and bring you back next week and talk about uh, your extensive work on the JFK case. Does that sound good to you? Yeah, that's fine. All right. Well, then, well then let's do that. Let's do that. Uh, coming back on next week's program, part two, Vince Palomara. He's the author of Survivor's Guilt, and we've been speaking about his most recent book, Who's Who in the Secret Service. Vince, thank you so much for speaking with us. And uh, again, I hope that we will uh, we'll talk again. Sounds good. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And since we hate to do any radio parallax without at least one edition of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, let's do that. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for party loyalty with the news that Nevada voters elected brothel owner Dennis Hoff to the state assembly despite the fact that Hoff died before the election. Evidently, Mr. Hoff died last month after throwing himself a 72nd birthday party attended by both porn star Ron Jeremy and former Sheriff Joe Arpaio. And wouldn't you have liked to have been a fly on the wall as Ron and Joe exchange pleasantries was on the other hand a bad week for taking your coffee black after a new study found that people who shun milk and sugar in their java are more likely to be psychopaths researchers found what they described as quote a robust relationship between increased enjoyment of bitter foods and heightened sadistic proclivities end quote radio parallax will run this one past our <laughs> favorite psychopath, Dr. James Fallon of UC Irvine. I guess the first question will be, Jim, how do you like your coffee? And it was definitely an ugly week last week for giving away the ending with the news that a Russian scientist stationed in Antarctica stabbed a colleague because the man kept telling him the endings of books he was reading. 
Yeah, the story is Sergei Savitsky, age 55, had spent four years at the remote Bellingshausen station on King George Island with victim Oleg Bologozov, age 52. They passed their time reading books. Bologozov reportedly tormented Savitsky by revealing the endings leading to an alcohol-fueled attack in the kitchen. Bela Gozov was evacuated and is expected to fully recover. Savitsky was charged with what is believed to be the first ever attempted murder in Antarctic history. And frankly, to editorialize on this, both Mr. Millen and I acknowledge that if we were on the jury, we'd let the guy off. And for our stat for the day, which we don't always do, but we're doing today. Our stat for the day is that the United States Air Force has spent $327,000, that's just since 2016, to keep replacing special coffee mugs that can reheat fluids on planes in flight. The mugs, which cost $1,280 each, evidently break easily when dropped. Your tax dollars at work. All right, we've got about I don't know, three or four minutes left on the show, and I think that we have to commemorate the centennial, which took place this weekend, of the armistice, which ended World War I. I believe in most parts of the world, November 7th is still honored as Armistice Day. In America, we changed it in the wake of World War II to call it Veterans Day. There's so much we could say about it. I would refer you, dear listener, to the article in The New Yorker by Adam Hochschild, titled The Eleventh Hour. The subheadline is, if you think the First World War began senselessly, consider how it ended. Amy Goodman had him on as a guest uh, last week to talk about the end of World War I. This verifies what I was told in high school, which was that thousands of lives were lost in the last day of battle because the Allies did not agree to a ceasefire as negotiations were being finalized. The armistice was to take place at 11 a.m. on the 11th day of the 11th month. And at 10.59, Henry Gunther of Baltimore became the last American to be killed. He charged a German machine gun crew with his bayonet fixed. In broken English, the Germans shouted back at him to go back. The war was about to stop. When he didn't, they shot him. Personally, I remember as a child asking my grandfather, who had been in uniform during World War I, I said to him that they called that the war to end all wars, but it didn't end wars. And I don't think I'll ever forget the expression on his face as he answered, no, it did not. The strangest part of that memory now is for me to look back at pictures of my grandpa wearing a doughboy uniform based in Honolulu, which was about as far from the killing fields as one could imagine one could be in World War I. But as fate would have it, will become ground zero 23 years later with the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Perhaps we can say more in the weeks to come, but that does it for today's program. You've been listening to Radio Parallax, which was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to Graham Arthur McKenzie and Vince Palomar, who will be back with us again next week. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you then.